0: Hello my icy spooks. I hope you're all doing well, enjoying August's mugginess, we'll call it, and leave it at that. I would like to start this wonderful series, which starts in Minnesota, and I may have to change the name of it because I've already had friends send me wonderful stories from across the country and across the world, but we're always going to come home back to Minnesota and our first story is a really neat one and it takes place in minneapolis and this story is called shadows on third avenue a museum security guard was making his last rounds of the night the third floor was quiet and as he expected deserted at this late hour The handful of visitors that day had long since gone home. Nevertheless, it was part of San Rowan's job to wean his way through the museum's nine historic period rooms to make sure no one had become so enchanted with the displays of American and European decor that they lost track of time and became accidentally locked inside or that they decided to spend a quiet night in. For example, the gray, grandly restored 1730 saloon from the Hotel de Bolière in Paris. Rowan was leaving the Queen Anne room when something caught his eye. Silhouetted in a contiguous doorway was a dark, indistinct figure. He had the impression it was a female walking rapidly into the room from the brightly lit corner. The The backlit cast her in deep shadow. Rowan himself was moving rather quickly through his rounds and had stepped past her before it registered with him what he'd just seen. He hurried around the corner to the other door and then back through the doorway where he would just seen her to remind the person he assumed that was a straggler that the museum's hours were almost over. She wasn't there. Impossible she thought he thought. He even heard the wooden floorboards groan against her weight. A quick search confirmed what had immediately been obvious to Sam Rowan. He was the only living being in these rooms. Since 1915, the esteemed Minneapolis Institute of Arts, MIA, has welcomed tens of thousands of visitors each year to its wittier neighborhood home. Considered one of the finest comprehensive art museums in the world, the MIA owns more than 100,000 treasured works of art from five millennia of history and most of the world's great civilizations. From Egyptian cartonages to New Guinea yam masks, to masterpieces by Rembrandt, Poussin, and Monet, and contemporary works by artists varied as Chuck Close, Frank Stella, and Ansel Adams. The Mia's collections are breathtaking in their diversity. Its notable achievements include extensive Asian, Native American, and modern art collections. Special exhibits are scheduled throughout the year. A 2006 edition designed by Michael Graves enlarged gallery space by one third. With its free tours, audio guides, numerous interactive learning stations, art library, and detailed directories, the Mia is, quote, dedicated to bringing art to life for everyone, end quote. But to at least some employees, more than art sometimes comes to life in the labyrinth labyrinths of galleries and displays that comprise the Twin Cities Museum. For Sam Rowan, it was his encounter with the blurry black shadow comprising through the door of the Queen Anne Room in September 1996 that persuaded him that not everything at the MIA could be characterized as still life. He had started his work as a night guard only a short time before. He might have wondered about the advisability of taking the job. I was pretty freaked out, he says of his encounter that night. I told my supervisor about it, but it turns out he was one of the other guards who had 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 the same experience as mine he was pretty nonchalant about it. He was like, oh yeah, that that happens sometimes. And it happened to me a couple years ago. Each of the third floor period rooms of, at the Mia depicts domestic furnishings and interiors from a number of different eras between the early 16th and early 19th centuries. The Connecticut room, for instance, represents the interior of a home in col- uh, colonial America. Henry the Seventh would be at home in the Tudor room installed only a few years later by the museum as it opened at its first posted room. The english thing Georgian room displays British decor and designed from the late 18th century. The majority of the puzzling encounters at the museum seem to occur in or near these period rooms. Sam Rowan remembers with clarity that late evening in September in the Queen Anne room I was making my rounds, he recalls. I was going out of one of the doors, and what I saw was a person about my height, five foot seven or so. It looked kind of like a freestanding shadow, a blurring black figure coming in towards me, less than three feet away, walking towards me. And I was walking pretty fast, so I didn't really stop. I was going to say we were just about to close. Of course, when I turned the corner... It was gone. I even heard footsteps. I had the impression it was female. Rowan says the brightness cast from the hallway's overhead lights and from the hall's wall-mounted display cases kept whatever it was in the shadow. His immediate reaction was that she wasn't anything more than an errant visitor who needed to be directed out of the museum. Only there was no she to deal with. The entire incident was brief, Rowan says, but long enough for him to believe that it wasn't a person, or at least the shape of a living being, stepping out of the Queen Anne room. I'd say it was a ghost, Rowan admits. He was apprehensive after this encounter and tried to avoid these rooms for a while, especially after the museum closed for the night. But that's difficult to do when you're a museum security guard. In a time, he became more curious about who or what he had seen more than anything else. In time, he had a little compunction about working around the period rooms. I was pretty scared for a little while, but now, actually, I feel comfortable. I like being up there. I don't feel threatened or uneasy or anything. I enjoy it just fine. I decided if I see something, I see something. If I don't, I don't. Seeing something here at all is pretty rare. The supervising guard to whom Rowan reported the encounter has had his own run-in with a similar walking shadow. It occurred several years ago, and before this had all happened, in a corridor only a few feet from where Sam Rowan saw the shadowy woman. At one time, a window in that hallway looked out an interior courtyard. Remodeling has filled in that area with additional galleries, and an easily missed locked door now occupies the former window opening. The guard was looking out the window, now gone, at some courtyard activity below when he caught someone moving in the corridor walking toward him. He looked out the window for a few more seconds before turning to greet whomever was approaching him. The hallway was empty. He was certain that someone had been there moments before. Sam Rowan says that he had his only other run-in with something he cannot easily explain several years later. It also provided him with some evidence that the first time had not been a fluke. He remembers the second date quite clearly, March eleventh, two 2005. Although he maintains that second experience was not as phenomenal as the first, others might disagree. Rowan was again on his rounds, but this time he had just gone into the Northumberland Room, so named for its English country estate furnishing. I saw what looked like another silhouette outline, but just one of a leg from the knee down, the shoe and pant leg, maybe a little shorter than mine, but it looked like it was made out of a shadow, dark, not transparent, more detailed than the other thing I saw, he says. The perambulating limb was striding along next to Rowan, keeping pace and totally synchronized. Yet while Rowan's steps echoed clearly on the wood floors, the other footfall made no sound i didn't think anything of it because subconsciously i thought it was probably just my shadow rowan says but after i left the room i thought that didn't make sense because the placement of where i saw the leg was right underneath the light the shadow would have to be cast from something rowan retracted his steps he stopped and at about the point where the leg <laughs> appeared and looked around the light he looked around for light sources the chandelier above his head cast a shadow downward, but not in a manner that would account for what he'd just seen. There were no bright sidelights. Besides, Rowan concludes that the shadows are flat against the surfaces and definitely not freestanding, most assuredly, not three-dimensional. And under no circumstances do they march along. Alone. Laurie Erickson is a development officer the Mia and the resident expert on the ghost stories that circulate among the staff and visitors. She's taken it upon herself to track down the tales and attempt to separate fact from hearsay. A studio art major in college and an accomplished photographer who also blogs and creates videos, Erickson has never had a ghostly experience at the Mia, though she eagerly hopes to one day. If she does, she will have plenty of company as she has found. One paranormal group conducted an investigation with compasses, thermometers, and tape recorders. They came to the conclusion that a male ghost lived in the vicinity of the Connecticut room and the Tudor room and was very possessive of that area. He hung around near the room's uh, draperies and liked the people. The group could not attach a name to the specter. Unfortunately, holding any kind of investigation with electronic gear is very difficult in a modern museum such as the media as they are with all manner of wireless communications and electronic surveillance devices, including video cameras and security motion sensors. Interference from the museum's own equipment would cast doubt on any paranormal group's findings should they use electronic gears of their own. Sometimes visitors are much more informal in their ghost studies. One group of curious visitors was discovered holding an unofficial seance in the Connecticut room. The guards kept their eyes on them but did nothing to shoo them away. Erickson believes the Connecticut room may be the most haunted room in the Mia. The same guard who discovered the seance told Erickson that once he was walking by the Connecticut room and he saw a dark, shadowy figure lurking in the doorway. He also claimed to have found all the curtains on a four-poster bed drawn closed when they are normally kept open. He assumed it was the work of a mischievous child. Perhaps it was the same child ghost who once pulled a visitor's coat only to vanish right in front of the startled guest. Erickson says the Connecticut room seems to be one display that for one reason or another bothers people. She says the mother of one employee refused to set foot in it while a former guard who moonlighted as a bouncer and was a bodybuilder made it clear to others that he disliked working around the Connecticut room but some of the other period rooms have their own episodes. On a morning in mid-2007, a guard turning on the lights in the Georgian room heard a chair scrape back from the center table, as if someone had just stood up. People have also reported hearing children's laughter in the same room. A painting of children hangs above the fireplace in the room. Not everything unexplained occurs in the period rooms, however. Erickson says a cleaning woman reported being locked in a bathroom in the new target wing of the Mia before the locks were installed on the doors. The origin of any resident ghost at the Mia would be hard to establish. There has only been one documented death at the museum. A workman died of a heart attack several years ago as he was installing a display in connection with the Mia's annual art in the Bloom exhibit. There doesn't seem to be any connection between the man's unfortunate death and the museum's ghost stories some believe that the physical objects can retain the living souls once associated with them or that the various pieces of furniture can bring along their own ghosts at the mia a large disquieting oil painting of a woman entitled miss t in cream silk number two figures in one or more one of the more famous albeit doubtful ghost tales there the 1920 work is by George Wesley Bellows and hangs in an out-of-the-way corridor on the first floor. Once, an unnamed guard fell asleep while working in the late shift in the glassed-in communication center. He was supposed to have been monitoring the museum's many video cameras when he decided to take a short snooze. He was brusquely wakened by an instant tapping on the outside of the window. When he looked up, A wrinkled old woman, decked out of a brocaded, cream-colored gown, scowled and shook her finger at him as if scolding him for his dereliction of duty. She then floated through the the closed door into the room and vanished. The guard recognized the woman as the subject of Bellow's painting. Perhaps the story of Mrs. T's scolding a sleepy guard began in part because of the unsettling nature of the artwork itself. In the nearly life-sized painting, a woman identified only as Mrs. T stares balefully out of the frame. Her gray hair tucked under a lace head covering, trimmed with small roses. Her gloved hands rest d- d- demurely in front of her, holding a dainty lady's fan and small purse. Not only does she have a bit of Charles Dickens, Miss Havisham about her, but the gaze from her brooding, deep-set eyes seem to follow to watch as one passes by. It is a technique that the artist used with a particular skill in the portrait, and yet to the peculiar Mrs. T and her eyes do not in actuality move anywhere, at least not on a regular basis.